Hello, listeners. This is Arvind Sareen, your host and CEO and chairman of Copper Digital. I am thrilled you have joined us for another insightful episode. Today, we have a remarkable guest who is at the forefront of shaping the future of healthcare technology. His strategic vision has been the driving force behind the extraordinary growth of MCG Health, a company that expanded over 20 times during his tenure. From being recognized as one of the Glassdoor's top 50 CEOs for medium and small businesses to receiving prestigious awards like the Class Points of Light Award and Glassdoor's Best Places to Work in 2024, our guest's impact on the industry is truly unparalleled. Today, he's here to unravel the key health tech trends that will dominate in 2024-25. So buckle up as we delve into the future of healthcare innovation with the visionary leader, John Shreve. Uh, welcome, John, and thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Wonderful. It's, um, you know, I've been waiting for this episode for so long because such an amazing job that you guys do and all these different softwares that are made available uh, that are with so many different healthcare providers and government organizations. So this is fantastic. So I guess to begin with, can you take us on a journey through your remarkable career? from your early days at Milliman to your role as CEO of MCG Health, what pivotal moments shaped your approach to leadership and innovation, especially in this healthcare sector? All right. Um, well, yeah, as you uh, mentioned in the introduction, I was at Milliman for 25 years. So starting at Milliman, I was really a, uh, a consulting actuary uh, and I'm a you know, mathematical type by background. And I started building up a practice here in Denver, Colorado. And that practice was a you know growing practice. But the structure of Milliman is such that it allows uh, the equity principles within the firm to to sponsor or invest in uh, other practices uh, that are there within Milliman. And one of those practices was the Milliman Care Guidelines. Uh, which I got involved with in uh, 2001 or two after the people who had started it were, were moving on and uh, a group of 15 of us uh, became the sponsors of the care guidelines. And we did so because the care guidelines at the time were one of the key sources where a staff of clinicians were going through the medical evidence and building out guidelines about about what's uh, appropriate healthcare in various settings. And we, we got involved and we started moving from it being an intellectual product, content product, to more of a product that's uh, integrated with software, and then more recently building it toward a healthcare technology side. But anyway, so, so we started building that up and we made investments in it. And then in 2012, uh, we decided that, that it was really very different than consulting. And so it was time to move it out of a consulting firm and into a place that's more uh, congruous with, uh, with the type of company that it was. And so, and so we moved from Milliman into the Hearst Corporation. I actually thought before we did that, that I was going to retire at Milliman, but I've uh, since been, you know, I've been here at Hearst now for, I guess, 11 years um, since, uh, since we joined them. Uh, and in that time, what we've really done is built up the uh, the technology side so that we're using you know AI and informatics to be able to read the electronic medical record uh, and figure out whether what's going on at the, in this particular case aligns with the guidelines or not. So at the core, 
we're still a uh, a guideline company, but but with time we've uh, we've become a technology company as well. Absolutely, love it. That's fantastic, and I think that's uh, something for people who may not be fully aware of what MCG does. So again, like you described, it started as a guideline company, and then you looked at how were actually people consuming those guidelines, and then you were able to just bake that into the software instead of being a guideline company. That's right. That's right. And the, and a, a lot. And in the end, a lot of the uh, the guidelines are used in payment decisions between payers and providers. So more than half of the payers in the country and more than half the hospital systems in the country are our customers uh, who, who follow the, the guidance. And we've really become a common language that, that the two sides use and they both, both sides trust us uh, because we remain independent. Um, and uh, uh, the technology side is, has, moved it from uh, a place where where quite often you know decisions are made and then case managers have to chase down doctors to to get things done right to one where the decisions can be made correctly to start out with um, and uh, uh, and using technology to do that absolutely absolutely no I can see how this can uh, be uh, this can save a lot of time and unnecessary back and forth and of course um, this is uh, super uh, critical, it looks like. Now, can you provide some insights on how MCG Health is actively shaping the healthcare industry landscape in terms of like what specific initiatives and programs is the organization undertaking to drive innovation and improve patient outcomes and contribute to the overall advancement of healthcare practices? Yeah, so um, there... There's multiple answers to that. Um, the uh, the technology side that we're working on right now is one where, um, you know, as I was describing, the you know that the old way of applying the guideline was opening up the MR um, and applying the guideline, see if it matches, sending that information to the payer. The payer's looking at the same things, um, and where we're taking it to is is what we call codification of our guidelines. So you can find within the EMR uh, the indications that certain things are going on. And where it's not codified, we're using uh, NLP to do the same thing. And and going beyond that, uh, for the future, we're using large language models to get to, to, to that similar side. But it gets to a place where... Um, you know, maybe a review used to take 15 minutes and now it's getting down to one or two minutes that you can do by having that information pulled right out in front um, and collecting it. We're also doing things that are more um, more on the clinical side. So um, a, a piece of our guidelines that's built up over the years is our behavioral health guidelines. And that's become um, clear that that's an important part of the, the overall healthcare delivery. And so just as we pull the evidence to say what's the most, you know, what's the most important things to be doing on the medical side, so we're doing the same thing on the behavioral health side. Um, and, that, and that's becoming a, a, a focus of what we're doing. Got it. No, and that's a very important space, of course. Um, what about, I also read that you are into ambulatory care as well and that that's yes, another yeah. so so uh 
um, we kind of think in the in the payment world of two different uh, lines of of the way you think about it. So one uh, is is if you go into the emergency department of a hospital with a medical condition, uh, what's the appropriate care there? When should you be admitted? When is an observation or just go home? Um, uh, and uh, uh, that's that's a place where where people look to us, you know, significantly on what the what the guidance is there. The other side, which is also a critical part, which is the part that people are more familiar with, which is the prior authorization side. So on the prior authorization side, you don't have to decide that in real time. You can decide it, you know, with a back and forth. Uh, and we have the guidance as well there. Um, uh, we're working with customers. Uh, and actually, uh, last week, CMS published a, uh, their final rule on prior authorization, um, which which says that uh, payers need payers need to accept uh, these requests through um, and what was known as DaVinci, uh, which is a uh, using fire technology between EMRs and the payers to have a standardized way that they're requesting uh, these services. And if you combine that standard way of requesting services with our codification, now you can that it gets to a place where things can be automatically approved much more easily than they were before. Uh, and so we're building that out. Um, and uh, uh, we, have, we have several customers who are starting to use what we call our collaborative care product to... Uh, um, to, to enhance that communication between payers and providers. So where before we provided the common language, now we're helping provide the common technology as well. That's amazing. That's fantastic. And I also heard um, there's guidelines for home health um, care as well. Yes. Yep. So we have guidance about uh, post-acute services. We have guidelines also that are more around chronic care management. So that's more in the how do you assess a patient what are the key things, and then build a care plan out. You can do that for someone with a chronic condition. You can also do that uh, so they're post-acute as people are leaving the hospital to build out the plan for uh, for what to do in, in those situations. So to understand correctly, this software runs on like the systems in the hospital. So it's like a, you know, desktop-based type software that's used. So, so, so we have our own applications, um, and then those app for, for hospitals called Indicia, and then those are integrated uh, with the uh, with the EMRs. And so, you go from the EMR, uh, you launch into Indicia. Um, our original soft, our our original software for that is where you went in and you documented against the guideline what was going on and sort of back and forth with the EMR. But our, but our new version that's, that's where the technology we call Synapse is where it's reading what's in the EMR, bringing it back and showing the case manager right next to uh, the, uh, uh, the, the guideline, uh, what information's already in the EMR that indicates or doesn't indicate that that uh, this particular care is appropriate. So yeah, it's uh, uh, and and we integrate our software. We actually have forty or fifty partners 
uh, that our software is integrated with. Wow. That's no, I can tell how that could be uh, so much time savings. And then of course, um, you know, that's, uh, that increases the productivity. This right. is, uh, this is fantastic. And, it, and at the same time, what we're doing is we're getting the right care for the patients. Um, and so, well, you know, the, the prior authorization process is one that people love to hate. Um, it's also one that's, that's helping make sure that the right care is getting the right people. So it's, uh, um, uh, you know, and, and, you know, studies show that, that, uh, one of the most dangerous places you can be is in the hospital. And so things that help people get out of the hospital or not get into the hospital, uh, is very, very good for patients. And we're, and we're always looking at what the, uh, the appropriate interventions are, what are, you know, so sort of, uh, people getting the right care, not too much, not too little, um, to, uh, to get to the best outcomes for the patients. Um, it's somehow unfortunate that it's sort of in the, with the lever of the payment system that we get there, but that's, uh, it's still getting there. Oh, got it. Got it. And, and no, I mean, this is great, especially for someone like me, who's an immigrant. I, I was born in, um, New Delhi, India, and then I moved here at a young age and I've lived here now last 20 years. Um, but I think the, I remember the kind of care that I got in India. And then when I last year was, uh, you know, had to go through some surgery and I think just the process, just the overall, like, I just love it. The healthcare system here is just super amazing. I know people may have, you know, uh, certain grievances, yeah, um, yeah. With the healthcare system, but I mean, for someone like me, I, it, it is just mind boggling. And, um, so I guess my question is then, do you, do these guidelines also apply? Obviously not maybe internationally, but is there a way to somehow support other developing countries or neighbors to somehow collaborate on some of these guidelines? Or if they just wanted to see what is the best way to provide care, then could they just look at that, those guidelines? Yeah. So, um, first off, uh, the evidence base we use for the guidelines is international. So, so we feel it's, uh, you know, people are people. So, it, so the, the best care works. Sometimes the infrastructure is not the same infrastructure. So, so a simple example is in England, um, uh, they don't have a lot of step-down facilities. So, so either you're in the hospital or you're at home and you, you don't have the, the steps in between. And so it's harder to say, well, use this step because it's not, it's not available in their system overall. But having said that, we do have uh, international customers. It's not a, a, a huge part of our business. A number of uh, payers in, in South America have been using our guidelines. Um, we have uh, 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 some Irish, some South African, some Middle Eastern uh, uh, customers. So there's, so it's it's not our focus, and and people come to us requesting use of them, and we and uh, and we found ways to support them. Got it. So the guidelines are those proprietary as well? I mean, I yes. know of course offer it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We would say that. The, the guidelines are our core intellectual property, and then, and then with time, the uh, um, the the software, the codification, so forth, is as well, 
as well our intellectual property. And sometimes there's pressure uh, from governments like that there was a, a, a rule about Medicare that was issued last year that, that requires um, transparency of the decision-making criteria. Uh, and so we've set it up in a way that's behind a firewall, but so that people can still see it so that we are, um, our lawyers tell us this way, we're protecting our intellectual property and at the same time complying with the transparency rules that are out there that we need to, uh, uh, you know, help people understand what the basis of decisions are. Got it. Got it. No, that's wonderful. Um, so since MCG Health has achieved significant growth and recognition under your leadership, could you maybe share a few key strategies you've employed to navigate the complexities um, of the industry and foster such success for the organization? Yeah. So, so I would say number one that, um, uh, you know, it's it's got to be a team effort. And in fact, one of the my CEO strategies is being careful not to make decisions that someone else should be making. Because as soon as I make a decision that someone else should be making, then they think, oh, all the decisions like that should go back to John. And so, and so by making, you know, if I make that decision, I'm training them that that's, that that's what's expected in the future. And I've seen uh, examples of, of uh, even sister companies within Hearst where the opposite has happened uh, and, and, that limits the amount of things you can do. While we have, you know, expert uh, doctors who really know the inside and out of what the appropriate healthcare is, and and nurses who write our content, and we have people who are experts in this Da Vinci and fire technology, um, who are uh, who are leading us there. And we have, you know, so if you just go through it and we, and our Customer-facing people are uh, um, actually we have some of the the highest-rated customer service of uh, uh, of companies, and it's it's because you know we're we're putting them out there, and and they have um, the ability to do what they need to do for for our customers as well. Uh, so it's so it's really um, uh, empowering team members. Um, we have a very heavily collaborative uh, culture so that people know not only can they work on it, but they can go to other people. And um, when new people start at MCG and then I check in on them, the most common comment I get from them is people here are so helpful. And so they're always surprised they can just ask anyone and they get, and they get the help. So it's this really, so it's, it's the, uh, uh, dynamic inside the company uh, that allows us to tackle these hard problems and and figure out uh, to figure out what we're going to do with them, as opposed to uh, you know my expertise of what healthcare technology should be. Yeah, no, I like that. So you built a culture where decisions are made by the people who are responsible, so they are empowered to make those decisions. And then it's a very collaborative, um, you know, culture where, you know, everybody is there as a team aligned to the common goal. Oh, I love that. I think those are some really core principles. And, and by the way, I'd say, and we're not perfect there. So we get in trouble of, 
of uh, people thinking we're thinking collaborative means we need a consensus and we work on no, no, you need to make the decision. And uh, places where, and in fact, we're going through an exercise right now of where is ownership not clear, and we're working through and making sure people know what this is what you own and uh, uh, and you you can make the decisions on it. Absolutely, absolutely. No, ownership is uh, really important. Like it's, uh, you know, being collaborative with the customers as well and just, you know, making sure that uh, they are likely to recommend the product uh, to others because they get enough value from it. So as we explore the future of health, the, the concept of virtual care ecosystem emerges. How do you envision the development of these ecosystems and what benefits could they bring to both healthcare providers and patients? Yeah. So, so interestingly, when when uh, the the guidelines were first started back in the 1990s, we had a doctor who was the original author of them named uh, uh, Dr. Doyle, um, and and my favorite quote from Dr. Doyle 30 years ago uh, was: "In the future, the only uh, necessary care." will be intensive care and home care. Um, and so he sort of envisioned this future of, of uh, uh, you know, if you don't need to be in the hospital, then you, you know, don't, don't be. And, and so I would say over, over those 30 years, that has changed already significantly. Uh, not that significant, you know, there's still, it's still not to the extreme that, that he stated and he was probably, Tried to be a little provocative there, um, but uh, uh, the uh, a lot of the care that's uh, being delivered, you know, it's the pandemic taught us a lot of it could be done uh, virtually. Uh, the uh, and at the same time, a number of of uh, hospitals have started up hospital at home programs, um, and. Uh, uh, we have guidelines about when that's appropriate and when it's not. Um, and uh, uh, so, and I actually think what I'm noticing in the Medicare Advantage space is is the uh, the providers there are getting more and more focused on functional medicine. Uh, so helping people understand their best habits so that their health is best as opposed to just their medical care being best. You know, so how many inpatient days per thousand members was about 600. Um, and, and now it's 100, 125, something like that. So, so again, over 35-ish years, uh, the country has moved significantly in the degree to which it uses hospital. So I think we're, uh, so, so I guess I'd say I agree, it's becoming more virtual. And it's a trend that's a very, very long-term trend. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think with all of uh, the technology advancements and also a little bit more of the adoption, like you said, after the pandemic, because there was no other choice, um, you know, even patients are able to adopt that. And that's benefited not just the patients who are adopting, but the ones who did not have access because they live right. in a remote area. I had a really interesting conversation with a company that provides uh, speech therapy and they are um, you know they 
they've been doing it even before the pandemic, but after the pandemic, the demand went through the roof. They cannot take uh, take in customers that are coming in. I mean, obviously they're expanding now, but um, and and you know, speech therapy, whether it's for kids or for older adults or for somebody who's gone through some trauma. So that's um, you know that that was super interesting. Uh, on the way that the landscape is changing. Well, on the on the behavioral side, the behavioral therapy, the thing that's showing up is that um, a virtual therapist can actually be more effective because people are nervous about telling another person what they're thinking about. But if they know it's a uh, uh, you know it's a computer, they're they're actually more comfortable with it, and so it might end up being more effective. Kind of like writing in a personal diary, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, fantastic. So as an industry veteran, how have you seen the mindset of healthcare professionals evolve regarding the adoption of technology, right? We talked about obviously how important it is for the patients to be open to that, um, you know, those virtual care ecosystems that are developing, but also then I think it's equally important for the healthcare professionals um, to be able to, uh, be welcoming to the technology and what strategies have been effective in fostering a culture of technology acceptance and integration with the healthcare organizations? I, I think the question might be backwards, right? So the, uh, you know, when the EMRs were introduced, um, the, uh, the amount of overhead that they placed upon providers uh, was significant such to the you know to the point where people don't want to work in healthcare anymore or they they uh, recognize that they couldn't spend as much time with the patient uh and uh so so to me it's not and this isn't my area but it's not how do you uh get the providers to accept that it's how do you make the technology better so that uh the uh, uh the care is is easier to deliver and you know it's you know some of the things that are going on are again using uh, llms to listen into the visit and make the notes so the doctor doesn't have to so the doctor can spend more time with the patient or you know just finding ways that that uh um it was you know that the a lot of the technology has been made you know too difficult for people to use and that's you know and and I guess we do, we do have the examples within our own side of how do we take away sort of the uh, work where the nurses had to dig through the EMR and just find it for them and say, here it is. Uh, and so that's, uh, um, you know, with time, technology has to get better so that providers accept it as opposed to, you know, using change management to get them to accept it. True. I mean, because it becomes a no-brainer. If you tell somebody, hey, you could use this and then save 20% of your time, you know, why would they not? Yep. But I think then, then, then the responsibility lies on innovators to come up with better ways or ways that are more provider-centric. Um, you know, and there could be like somebody wearing the provider-centric hat and somebody wearing the patient-centric hat because, you know, there's that balance. You don't want to uh, pass on those efficiencies at the cost of, um, you know, the patient's experience either. And I think that that's something that can be beneficial. Okay. Um, 
the integration of genomics and precision medicine is advancing. How do you foresee these technologies influencing treatment plans and healthcare outcomes in the near future? Yes, so it's a tricky one because um, uh, to one of our one of our editors uh, says to decide, you know, even whether to to bring that in, you have to look at the clinical relevance. So, so if you do a genetic test to say, say this helps predict certain things. Is that going to change your treatment? Um, and if there's some, if there's a very divergent course that this genetic marker versus that one does change it, well, then you got to test for it, and it's very important to do so. Uh, but if it's, uh, if you know, doctors, and we've heard of, oh, I was just curious what this is, you know, there's also unnecessary things that that you got to watch out for when you're when you're looking at that. The other thing I think about with with precision medicine is is when you look at medical evidence, um, the medical evidence will say on average this treatment improved the outcomes. Um, but what it doesn't do as good a job of is say, well, it improved the outcomes for 30% of the people. How do we identify those 30? Because for the other 70%, um, it was unnecessary, right? Because it doesn't, isn't going to help you. Uh, so, so it is, um, so I think it's good. I think it's also like everything else, you got to use it in the right places. And especially if it comes with some side effects. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. My, my wife, by the way, has uh, my favorite quote of hers is there another name for side effects. They're called effects. Um, and and I, you often see the physician is focused on the particular discipline that they're in, uh, and the other things are just side effects. Well, to the patient, that's not true. That's Yeah, that is true. So as technology becomes more ingrained in our healthcare, how can organizations strike the right balance between Leveraging advanced technologies and maintaining a patient-centric approach, like we were talking about. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it really is um, uh, finding ways to get back to the patient-centric approach and making technology do the work, as opposed to making healthcare do you know making the providers do the work to meet the technology. So it's it's time to flip that on its head, and I think that's happening. But it's a uh, um, uh, as long as you have the the limited time that you can see a patient, and that time is being cut into by technology, that's not helpful technology. True, true. So it can't just be focused on cutting the time, you know, that they have one on one with the provider or you know the the, the physician. I guess it has to benefit. Like somebody's got to have a seat on the table, you know, that is patient centric while creating a new process for sure. Like, you know, just really, really genuinely caring for that experience and, and transforming yourself into becoming that patient or, of course, otherwise talking to the patients as well. So artificial intelligence and machine learning is everywhere. I mean, especially with, you know, these large language models just completely changing the game. And now they are increasingly integrated into healthcare solutions. How do you envision these technologies shaping the future of 
diagnostics, treatment plans, and overall healthcare delivery. Yeah, yeah. Well, as we've been been learning more about the large language models, uh, the you know there are certainly you know you have the hallucinations and the uh, if you're trying to to write things out, um, uh, and it's certainly not an analytic tool; it's a language tool, right? Um, but on the other hand, what we're concluding is that they're very good at summarizing information and putting it into formats that are more useful than what they're in. And so if you especially think about all the notes that go into an electronic medical record um, and setting the and saying, instead of having it sort of freehand and all these things typed in, here's the format I would like it in. And that, that leads to easy processes. It's very good at doing that because it's, you know, uh, someone was going through things. Actually, uh, another very interesting use case is translating the reading level of a of of materials from one reading level. You know, so I want this fifth grade uh, reading level. Yeah. Um, and it, and it's very good at at uh, at changing that out. So it's a uh, um, so I would say for for the uh, the new large language models, it's it's uh, understanding what they do well, and I think there's some things that does very very well that can accelerate what we're doing, and understanding the things that it's that it's probably not so good at, and uh, so so don't try and don't don't try and apply it inappropriately there. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think even among different large language models, you know, there's a lot of difference in what they're best at. Like if you look at OpenAI versus BARD versus hmm. some other ones, even um, we hear feedback as we talk to the customers that, oh, BARD is really good at maybe some of the facts that it's putting together, but OpenAI maybe not so much, but it has its own you know, advantages there as well. And what about in um, diagnostics and treatment plans? What do you what do you think on those aspects? Yeah, so I might not know as much uh, um, in uh, in that side. I think the uh, uh, the other place that we've used AI is is uh, um, in effect triaging cases, so that um, you know if you're making the decision, should this be inpatient or should it be observation? Um, uh, there's some cases that are obvious. And and the AI can pick it out and say that's obviously an inpatient, that's obviously an observation. Here are the ones that are less obvious. Send those back to the case managers um, to help them figure it out and and sort of, if nothing else, even just prioritize their work that says these are the uh, uh, most important ones. And we've used it uh, to create that prioritization um, as well. No, I like that. I like that. Um, and I think for us as well, these these use cases and learning about these is just extremely important to then, you know, come up with more ideas. Like so far, what we've been able to do is like there's an HVAC company that we're helping with a dashboard to predict the demand of how many uh, technicians they would need based yeah. on the weather data. And um, they, they love the tool. They're our customer as well. And I think um, you know, similarly, there are so many aspects where this can be applied because I, I heard about, you know, what you just mentioned for the first time. It's just uh, mind boggling. 
I think over the next two to three years, I mean, there's so much that's going to change. It's um, it's it's crazy. Um, so from your perspective, how can healthcare workforce adapt and thrive in an era where technology plays an increasingly integral role in patient care and administrative processes? Like, um, you know, there's the scare with AI. Everyone's jobs going to go away as well. I know that, uh, you know, for some some of them, obviously that's not possible. You know, to to just for AI to just take away the jobs, yeah. but. What do you think about some of the other ones that are more vulnerable, like the radiologists, or maybe, you know, some of the other ones where AI can do a better job than a, than a human? Yeah, yeah, no. I, so, so for the most part, I'm not thinking that that healthcare workers are at risk, and there's enough of a shortage that that uh, that I'm yeah, I don't don't think in that direction. Radiology might be right that there might be a <laughs> that might be a threat there. Um, but it's, uh, uh, I think what's actually going to happen is it's going to make their jobs easier uh, so that some of the overhead things, it's the, you know, how does technology meet meet them as opposed to them being forced into to, to doing things. I think that'll happen a whole lot more. So I, I think it'll become a, a better uh, work experience as the AI is, is integrated. So somebody's going to make your people. <laughs> So generally, healthcare professionals should not be worried about their jobs being taken away uh, by AI. And I, I agree with you because I know that the demand for even nurses is, yeah. is has skyrocketed. We, in fact, created an Uber-like model for a company here locally in Dallas. And that's like Uber model where nurses could download the app and they could select the shift that the providers are sending that, hey, we've got a shift. We need somebody to fill it. And then they could just select yeah. their committee, you know, that um, surge pricing like Uber as well, where the nurses could, uh, you know, get that extra benefit for days or shifts that are, um, you know, inconvenient. And um, it's, it's, it's mind boggling. And we created that entire platform, uh, you know, for that company. But that goes to show that after the pandemic, the demand's gone yes. further up. Yep. That's right. Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, good. So, um, I guess as a leader in the industry, what do you believe are the most exciting and promising advancements in healthcare on the horizon? And how might these innovations redefine the future of healthcare delivery and management? Yeah. So, so I do think I, I sort of started with, with uh, getting to functional medicine so that we're improving health more than we're improving medical care. I think that's, you know, that, that's yeah. happening inside of Medicare Advantage plans more and more. So that, so that pay, you know, it used to be healthcare payers didn't do anything about that, but they are doing something about that now. And that's happening more and more. Um, so I think that's an exciting development that, uh, uh, you know, people have figured out that this is the most effective way uh, to to achieve health, and and they're getting there. And that's it's largely related to social determinants of health and to behavioral health as well. So just getting that baseline better. Um, uh, and then in the meantime, um, you know, continue the, 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 uh, the state of healthcare continues to advance. Um, you know, one of the, uh, the, you know, a, a guideline that changed recently that no one ever thought would change was, was, uh, appendicitis. So 
for decades, it was thought if you had an appendicitis, you take your appendix out. No question. Well, the evidence is starting to show that antibiotics might just might do just as well or better. So it's so the one thing that we are thinking was like a certainty in 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 evidence keeps changing and and uh, uh, or changed. And there are there are regular developments in uh, uh, in healthcare that that we have to stay on top of because and doctors will will you know learn what they learned in medical school and have a tougher time keeping up with it but uh but the evidence is changing all the time and and therefore healthcare delivery has to change all the time and it is so it's uh um so i think there's there's a lot of you know it, it'll continue to be a changing field and that's good yeah but i mean we've known about the evidence-based decisions for a very long time i mean this is i guess w what science is right yes. to you experiment uh, but then I think you're right, though. I mean, I am hearing evidence-based in all the different industries, not just in healthcare. Yeah. I mean, evidence-based marketing, evidence-based, you know, so many things that yeah. have now adopted that. And I think now we have uh, capability in the data for more evidence as well, where we could have those meaningful insights, you know, based on processing large amounts of data as well. And and I think that's definitely new. Yep, that's right. Well, great. This has been fantastic. Now, um, my last question to you would be, considering your vast experience, what advice would you offer to entrepreneurs and innovators and uh, you know, anyone in the healthcare industry who's looking to navigate the complex intersection of healthcare and technology and make a meaningful impact in the coming years? So what advice would you offer to them? Well, you know, the core advice for entrepreneur independent of healthcare would just be listen, 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 um, so that you understand what what the troubles are that that people are having that you can help fix. Um, in healthcare, I think it's it's uh, you know make sure that what you're doing uh, is in the end benefiting the patient, um, and you know, and there are lots of opportunities for technology to improve the way healthcare is being delivered, but make sure it's uh, patient-centered as well. And you know, it, it's going to be harder to go wrong if you're if you're doing that. Uh, so I think those would be my, my uh, kind of easy answers. But yeah, no, well, that's fantastic, and I think uh, that's uh, really important. Of course, listening is just you know a skill that'll help you across the board in your life. And that's right. no, I, and I think, and this is from years of consulting as well, the number one business skill is seeing things from the other person's point of view. And if you can do that, then you can figure out where you need to go. And I would agree with you. Well, John, this has been really fantastic. Thank you so much for your valuable insights. I'm sure that a lot of the listeners, the viewers would definitely benefit a lot from this. And this has been really fantastic. Thank you for being so open and sharing a lot of these things with, um, you know, our audience. Um, I'd love to continue to stay in touch with you and and do, um, you know, maybe more of these uh, types of sessions in different formats. So thank you again for your time and really appreciate all the amazing work that you're doing. All right. My pleasure. And thank you for all your curiosity that, that went into the questions. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Bye. Bye-bye.